The Fake Show Podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Hutchison & Stefan, the Craft House Brewery, now with two locations, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T-Shirt Designs, Mr. Antenna, and by Banger Brewing in downtown Las Vegas. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome. So I somehow was lucky enough to contact singer-songwriter Janice Ian recently to ask if she would be okay with doing an interview with me. And much to my surprise, she said yes, but that she wanted to first get her Better Times Will Come project off the ground, and then we could talk. So it was a few weeks later, actually, the Better Times Will Come project really has taken off and has already helped a whole bunch of other artists whose careers hit the brakes during this pandemic. For those of you not familiar with Janice Ian, she is a Grammy award-winning artist who burst onto the music scene with her hit single, society's child when she was just a teenager in the mid-60s, a very self-assured teenager who has a gift for social and political commentary and really had no idea what effect her song, Society's Child, would have on different parts of the public. It really took off when Leonard Bernstein featured Janice on a television special, Inside Pop, The Rock Revolution. We'll talk about that song, who discovered her as a kid, her moving song, At Seven and the Better Times Will Come project. So here it is, my chat with Janice Ian. First of all, Janice, this interview is a long time coming for me. I've been an admirer of you and your work since I was a kid in the 60s. Yeah. Well, you were both kids in the 60s then, Jim. Thank you. I know. <laughs> your, your Better Times Will Come project, it's, it's really brilliant as it turns out. What was the idea behind this? It started uh, just because I had a new song. I wrote it, I think, the day after or two days after John Prine died. And I, I wasn't that close to John, but I had just seen him at a gig. And we knew each other since, gosh, since his first show at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. And he was a writer that I admired and looked up to. And I wrote this song called Better Times Will Come in an hour, which is really, really unusual for me. I think that's happened twice in my life. And I put it online because I thought, well, maybe people could use a bit of cheering up. At the same time, a bunch of my friends went into lockdown and quarantine. And all of our shows for this year were canceled or postponed. Me too. And I said to one friend, John Gorka, hey, anything I can do to help? And he said, I don't know. I have a new album coming out. I have no way to publicize it. My gigs. And I said, let's put this song up and why don't you just do a version see if we can get some people to listen so we did that and 70,000 people listened <laughs> and a lot of people went and checked out his website bought some merchandise became new fans and I thought this is pretty cool we're on to something I tried a few other people and before I knew it there was this great buzz going and I contacted a couple of friends like Neil Finn and Eric Bibb and said what nice. about this project you know something to do that would help drive traffic to other people's websites and yours. I think I got two turndowns out of 100 people. So it, it became a really cool thing. And then it got, it got so big, Jim. My webmaster and I were struggling to make it work in my website. We had set it up as part of our little store. And all of a sudden, we had 150 entries. And uh, so he started building a dedicated site. And then people kept writing. And so... The building kept going and going and going, and like any project took on its own life. So when we looked up and the website was finally done, built by him and 
my friend Jeff and myself, and contributed to by people like uh, Children's Book and uh, Puzzle Maker Sue Kachia and Ian McRae, who's a National Geographic photographer who took our landing page photo. It was very homegrown and a great feeling, and we opened the site. Uh, I think we've had about 30,000 visitors so far, and it's it's become a great way to showcase a lot of talent that uh, kind of got stuck with their first projects coming out and have no way to go on tour to support it. We've got a few poets in there, like Jane Hirschfeld, who I was able to invite and say, use this as a way to publicize your book since all your book events have been canceled. We've got colorings for kids because parents were writing to me and saying, gosh, you know, do you have any friends who might give me some coloring pages? My four-year-olds are making me crazy. That's such a great idea, the the coloring pages. Did I see a uh, a, a comic strip, a Boynton comic strip up on your site? Oh, yeah, your site? Sandra Boynton. I wrote to her and we'd only met once uh, at a book event. And I, I mean, it's, you know, it's Sandra Boynton. So it's anybody familiar with kids literature knows her work. Yeah. And I said, would you consider this? And she said, heck yeah, I'm in. And I said, I didn't even know you knew who I was. And she said, who didn't grow up with you? I, you know, <laughs> in a way, that's great to hear. In a way, it's a little strange. I can't exactly remember where I had run into your Facebook page. It just suddenly kind of appeared. I don't know if it was a friend. I was so excited because the idea that you had started was already, you know, the ball had gotten rolling on this. Do you ever, do you feel in a way that maybe you kind of co-wrote this with John Prine in a way? Mm, wouldn't that be nice to think that John came down and thought of this? I, you yeah, know, yeah. I I wouldn't go that far because it's just a little it's a little creepy, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I always feel like things happen as they're meant to happen if you just let them, and I think that John was very he had a real gift for something that I, I've never been able to do before, which is a very simple, straightforward, and yet filled with layers song. Um, and this is a three-chord song, and I've never written a three-chord song in my life. Um, John Mellencamp said to me, you know, you always got to put that jazz stuff in there. And then he said, well, that don't fly in Bloomington. And, and really, to me, it, it sounded, uh, the composition, your original composition of this and your voice, it, it really could have originated in the 60s. It kind of has that feel to it. Yeah, I think that it's it's part of what was wonderful about 60s music a lot of the time was that you could there was such a cross fertilization of forms you had promoters like bill graham who would uh, make a bill of myself and the doors and big brother and the holding company and bb king and mahavishnu orchestra and so you'd yeah. have these five acts appearing at the village theater and it would basically be hey if you want to see the doors you got to go see this girl with a guitar if you want to see the Mahavishnu Orchestra, you got to listen to some blues. So there was that cross-fertilization in music. Well, I don't need to tell you. And then you had artists reaching out from other forms to artists in other forms. So uh, a jazz artist like Mel Torme might reach out to someone like me in the folk field and say, do you have anything for me? And you don't see that much anymore. So it, it's one of the best things about this has just been that a Diane Shore will be will be involved. And at the same time, I've got Carlene and Ryan who are straight ahead Seattle punk, just thrashing away on the song and making this <laughs> crazy um, bomb looking Hiroshima type video out of the song. Uh, it, it's been fascinating to watch how many 
different interpretations one song can have. I mean, I've never been that fortunate, you know. I've, I've always gotten one or two cuts on a song and, and been thrilled at that. So It's kind of refreshing, though, to see a lot of like-minded individuals, isn't it, at it this is. time? I think it's amazing to see people, to see how willing people are to come together and how much people would like to come together and not, I don't want to get into the politics of it and make everybody crazy, myself included, but I think people have a real yearning to be part of a community and part of a greater world. And if we do each other a disservice when we, when we assume that because we hold different beliefs, we can't get along. I sort of went to a bunch of people I didn't know, my hat in hand, and said, or people I only knew in passing, like Diane, and I said, one of the conditions you'll have to sign up for is I want to give people something for free. I want people to feel like they can go somewhere and get a gift and not have to pay for it, but take their minds off their troubles for a while. And now with the new site, you can actually go on to bettertimeswillcome.com and you can download a month at a time of the songs. So you can download, I think, between the songs and the coloring books, about 150 different thing pieces of music. You can watch all the videos one after the other. That's a great thing for my fellow artists yes. to have agreed to because no one, no one said no to the downloading. Everybody said, that would be great. I'm happy to contribute. I want people to feel like art is there to serve them, get along. Very well said. Now, you, your site also has, uh, at any given time, free downloads on the website, which is something you don't exactly see too often these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was part of the whole goal when I started it. and. It, I sort of went to a bunch of people I didn't know, my hat in hand, and said, or people I only knew in passing, like Diane, and I said, one of the conditions you'll have to sign up for is I want to give people something for free. I want people to feel like they can go somewhere and get a gift and not have to pay for it, but take their minds off their troubles for a while. And now with the new site, you can actually go on to bettertimeswillcome.com and you can download a month at a time of the songs. So you can download, I think, between the songs and the coloring books, about 150 different thing pieces of music. You can watch all the videos one after the other. That's a great thing for my fellow artists to have agreed to because no one, no one said no to the downloading. Everybody said, that would be great. I'm happy to contribute. I want people to feel like art is there to serve them. Tell me about the Pearl Foundation, which you have raised uh, a ton of money for. Yes. So my mother, Pearl, had multiple sclerosis, yeah. and she had always wanted to go to college. But my grandparents hadn't felt that women should go to college. So instead, she had helped to put my uncle through, her brother, and then she had put my father through and my brother through. And when the multiple sclerosis got really to the point where she could not work, she became um, horribly depressed. And I started looking for some way for her to keep going. And Goddard College up in Vermont at the time started a new program, basically pitched at older students. And it was there for people like my mom who didn't have the wherewithal or time or the ability to be on campus for four or five months at a time. And so she went to Goddard and she got her degree. It took her 14 years because of the multiple sclerosis, but she, she got her degree. And I like to say that to the day she died, that degree hung 
where she could see it from her wheelchair next to a picture of my brother and me. But she considered those two things her great accomplishment. Well, I know I start choking up. Sorry. It's very, it's very touching, and especially the pictures of of you and your mom. I can certainly relate to that mm. stuff. Yeah, and and I never wanted to go to college. I find it very ironic that I put my brother, or I helped put my brother and my mother and my wife through college because <laughs> I yeah. walked out in tenth grade and said goodbye. But after my mom died, I wanted to honor her. And my wife, this was in 98, said, uh, why don't you endow a scholarship? And I kind of laughed because we were pretty broke and said, where money come from? And she said, quote, unquote, go on that Internet thing you keep talking about. <laughs> and why don't you hold an auction? So we held an auction and we raised uh, $70,000, which went to Goddard. And we started the first scholarship there for the Pearl Foundation. We became a real foundation. And I started donating my merchandise money from the road and from my website. And then fans started sending money. And then people started actually leaving us money in their wills. Um, people would throw gatherings that we started calling living room concerts. And I would show up and play in their living room, literally, for them and 40 of their closest friends. And 100% goes to the Pearl Foundation. And I think at the end of last year, we had endowed at three different schools, four different schools, we had endowed a million one hundred thousand dollars in scholarships. Amazing, amazing! And by the way, those living room concerts. I went to a uh, living room concert once with Pat Denizio of the Smithereens. Oh, sure, uh, that was amazing. Pat Denizio. It was incredible, and it's like you say, forty or fifty people who were lucky enough to be there. I've seen a lot of great shows over the years, but for some reason, boy, that one really s sticks with you when you're when you're that intimately involved with a performer. Yeah, one of the things that really hit me this year was I had a living room concert scheduled up in the Boston area and another one, a yearly one from a very generous family on Bainbridge Island in Washington State, and they both had to be postponed. But both of the donors said, you know, keep the money in the account. And we'll just trust that you will be here next year. This sounds so Pollyanna. It's a good feeling to feel like you can do good, you know? Yeah, well, and it really, it shows what a loyal following you have, too, from all these years. I listened to an interview you did. It may have even been on your, posted on your site. You did this in 1967 on WNYC Radio. Oh, wow. And you were on the Dave Sears show. Oh, and I, Dave, and I, yes. I, I believe you had to be about, what, 16 or probably, something like that at the time. Probably, yeah. That was, those were great details on that station, too. And I, it's one thing to hear yourself. I don't know if you've listened to that at all recently, but it's one thing to hear yourself singing your songs at that early age. But it's another to listen to yourself in an interview. It had to be kind of trippy for you to hear your 15, 16 year old mm. self. I'm, I'm always shocked <laughs> and appalled at how incredibly uh, self-absorbed I was. Sure, I'm still pretty self-absorbed, but you know, at 16, that kind of goes with territory. So compound that with uh, what we laughingly refer to as a chick singer, compound that with being a performer and you just get uh, ego squared. So I'm, I'm always appalled by that. And yet, there's something really wonderful about being given opportunity to have a voice at that age, because I really think we underestimate kids. I, I saw it in my granddaughters, and I see it when I meet younger people. I think that we tend to get older and 
discount we were when we were young. And yet when you're that age, you've got a bravery and an awareness of the world that is completely different and and so necessary. You look at the young people now who are marching or the young people who are out there trying to work to better the world. Um, and again, it sounds Pollyannish, but it, it gives me a lot of hope. Well, and at the time of that interview, you... I- I really loved it. You were very, you say, you know, that it's, you were appalled, but I, it, it was this girl who was very self-assured. You could hear that. The female host, I don't think she quite knew what to make of this teenage oh, girl well, in 1967. I think that's true. <laughs> that was true a lot. When I was writing my autobiography, <laughs> I, I got a point where my parents heard my first song that I had written. And I was 12, and I, I was sitting in the back of the car as we drove to my grandparents for Friday night dinner. And I think I wrote, and my and they turned, my mother turned and looked at me like I was a two-headed calf. <laughs> you just, you don't expect it. And yet, again, going back to the Better Times Project, if you go on there, there are several people who are in their teens, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17, yeah. and they're out there making music. So... Yeah, there were there were a lot of adults who were very. Um, I'm going to be polite and say surprised. Right, right. Well, were your, were your parents encouraging about your music, and and did you take lessons? What was the situation at home? Oh gosh, you know, I started out on a farm, and my dad played piano, and I, I was about two and a half apparently, and I told him I wanted to learn piano. I connected it with his fingers, and apparently he told me that I'd have to know my numbers and be able to tell time and my ABCs. And my mom said, I marched into the kitchen and said, okay, I need to learn to tell time and my numbers up to 10 and uh, my ABCs. So let's go. <laughs> and next day I went to my dad and said, I'm done. Let's start. So my mother told me years later that she, she thought that that kind of drive was really unusual and that as worried as they were about me and the choices I made, they also felt like there was nothing they could do to stop me, so they'd better keep an eye on me instead. I, I really don't know how they did it. I think it was awfully um, awfully brave of them as parents to to let their child go into the recording studio. I mean, in those days, gosh, I had lunch with Donnie Osmond years ago, and he said, you know, there were just five of us then. There was Brenda Lee, Stevie Wonder, you, me, and Michael Jackson, and... Those were the only five teenagers out there who were really performing and writing and singing and arranging. And only you and Stevie were writing and only you were writing contemporary songs. And I thought, no wonder it was this change to everyone. Yeah, well, and when I hear Society's Child, it doesn't matter how many times I listen to it. That song just melts me away. Uh, And... I, I can only compare what you wrote, both musically, you know, the lyrics as well, to something that maybe Brian Wilson had come up with on Pet Sounds oh, or Smile. Gosh. It was just one of those, just so beautifully well, done. Brian Wilson, I mean, you're talking about, Brian Wilson is why Society's Child is a pop record and not a folk song, because I had never listened to pop music. It, it had always been kind of something that... Uh, my family, just, that side of my family didn't listen to. My cousins on the other side did. But we kind of looked down on it as something for, a, I don't know, it wasn't important like folk music was important. See, that that's when I'm embarrassed right. now at how arrogant I was. And then 
my grandfather in a transistor radio. And one day I heard Little Deuce Coupe, I think it was. I heard these harmonies. Yeah. And I remember just holding this radio to my ear thinking, what was that? And the Beach Boys totally changed the way that I looked at music, just night and day. Um, I got to tell Bruce that years and years later and say, I don't know if you even realize this, but that is why Society's Child has the the cool drums and the upright bass. And that's why my first record has the harmonies on it. It's you guys' fault. Right. So how did you get to the point where you got into the studio and who were the musicians and the producer who made everything um, work for you? I was hanging you? around the village a lot and I had met Reverend Gary Davis, blues player. And the and his wife took a liking to me. And I was playing um, anywhere anybody would let me. I was 14, I guess, or 13. 13. I'd had a couple of songs published in Ma uh, Broadside Magazine, which was really a radical left. Um, gosh, they were the first to publish Phil Oaks and Bob Dylan and Buffy St. Marie and a lot of folk yeah. singers, Tom Paxton, Eric Anderson. Yeah. And they published me. And I got invited to a few things. I suppose partly because of the novelty. You know, once word got out that I was 13, 14 years old. And the Reverend had me open for him at the Gaslight Cafe. And this guy ran up after and said, kid, I'm going to make you a star. Literally, that was what he said. And I laughed and I said, yeah, you and what army? The next day he took me to a lawyer <laughs> who took me to a producer, Shadow Morton. Uh, play me all your songs. I think I'd written yeah. 11. And he said, we'll cut that one next week. Here's where to go. And so I thought it was just that simple. That's how it happened. It wasn't until after we cut it and then it got turned down by every record company in the country that I realized it might be difficult. Um, we got great reviews in it from every reviewer who heard it. And it was originally paid for by Atlantic right. Records, but they said they couldn't risk putting it out. And it finally wound up at MGM, uh, Verve Forecast, at a new label. Shadow and his team had just banged on doors and banged on doors. And finally, this one opened. They were signing up a lot of people from the village, like Dave Van Ronk and uh, Laura Nero was on there. Um, the folks who became Chicago were on there. Wow. Um, Richie Havens, my old friend. And they signed me, thinking we would all give them a big tax loss. And then a couple of us had hits and ruined the whole plan. Well, the thing, too, about that song is the first few times you played it in person, it was pretty intense, wasn't it? Yeah, there were there were a lot of people who were very upset by that song. And I, I still don't completely understand it, but it was a very good lesson to me in what power a song can have. Because you're talking three minutes, maybe three minutes, yeah. 30 seconds. You're not talking about... Um, an hour or a week or a month or a political campaign. You're talking about a song. And yet, if you look at the history of the civil rights movement, a song like We Shall Overcome really united it. And Society's Child, I think, scared a lot of people, made a lot of people very angry. And sometimes when people get scared enough, they also get angry. So I, gosh, I used to... Um, people trying to trip me when I was walking onto the stage or uh. out into the audience, people picketing my shows, people spitting in my food and then putting it on the plate, you know, in front of me and serving it to me, people sending really nasty things like, um, oh, you know, recently there was that incident where somebody put razor blades all around 
a political sign to take them down with 13 stitches. Well, I had somebody send me a record like that. And uh, bomb threats. Um, it, it was it was scary. And yet, in a way, I knew, <laughs> again, it was a great lesson, Jim. It was, it was a lesson in the power of a song. Because songs are insidious that way. They sneak in under the radar. Before you know it, you've got something like an At 17 talking about serious stuff. And I remember you performing Society's Child on uh, the Smothers Brothers show, and you were so great. Oh, of course, thanks. of course, those two guys never shied away from controversy. And I know, I know from interviewing Dick and Tommy through the years, they said, among other things, that your appearance was one of their proudest moments. Really? Yes. Yeah. yeah. They did. Oh, nice. Yeah, I just remember Pat Paulson's presidential dinner. You know their sidekick, <laughs> right? He ran for president the first time. He held his presidential dinner at Horn and Hardart Cafeteria, uh. and it was a spaghetti <laughs> dinner. And I think it was a dollar a plate or something. Yeah, there were a lot of people who were really good to, me. and there were a few people who were not so good. And I feel like I'm I'm very lucky that unlike some of my friends, then um, I came through. And I lived to tell the tale. There's a picture of you and Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. Now, I know that most of his shows from the 60s got destroyed for whatever reason. Did, did, you, did you have a copy of your appearance on that show? And did Johnny understand what your songs were all about? Oh, I think he got it. Yeah. I was being followed around by a photographer from Life magazine at the time. So there's a good amount of still shots of myself backstage with Shadow and with my, my chaperone, Merka, and then on stage with Johnny and with Ed. They kept telling me backstage, now just don't talk to him, don't go over, don't sit down, just you sing your song and then you leave. And so I had it drummed into my head. I think right. I was totally <laughs> shocked when Johnny motioned me over and had me sit down and talk to him. Fantastic. I have never seen it. I'm not sure if it was one of the ones that was destroyed, but if memory serves, I just kept trying to look professional <laughs> you know my first time on a big tv show i mean the tonight show was just oh gosh it was huge i don't think yeah, we can even yeah. imagine it now that we've got cable but in those days you had seven channels you remember and uh, no i'm talking i'm from the midwest we're talking three channels oh, there gosh yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i was i was new york new jersey so we had seven did your three include the PBS channel? We did get the PBS channel, yes. We did actually, so it was four. Oh, so yeah. you got ABC, CBS, NBC, and uh, PBS, right. Janice, was there a time before At 17 really took you to another level that you kind of dropped out of the business for a bit? I dropped out when I was about 17 and a half. I, was, I played at uh, Lincoln Center. I was the first pop performer to play there. And... I walked off stage. You can't, it's hard even for me to remember or verbalize how hard it had gotten society's child and people chanting the N-word at me from their seats. Just being being a flashpoint like that. And then going on the road, leaving school, some people in the business who really resented that I was young right. and apparently carefree and didn't want me there. Uh, there was a lot of politics, and I'm talking about music business politics and entertainment business politics, not political politics, wow. which I think sometimes is kinder world. And then my parents were having problems, and I just started feeling like, hey, I'm, I'm making an album every six months, 12 songs or 11 songs that I wrote and I arranged and I played on. 
And then I go on the road for three or four months, and then I have to do it all over again. I want to sound ungrateful, but it felt like a trap. So, and I realized one day, Jim, I was thinking it was the first Berkeley Folk Festival. I just met Joplin and Big Brothers folks, Sam and them, and Richie and a bunch of other people. And I remember I was just barely 16, and I looked out, and all of these people were listening. And I suddenly thought, my God, they're really listening. I mean, I hadn't put it together till then. And I think it scared me. It scared me enough that I thought I need to sort out, do I want to be a famous person, or do I want to be a great writer, or do I want to be a performer, or do I want to be a guitarist, do I want to be on TV, what do I want? And it became a, a big weight of responsibility. And then I was out walking in New York, and somebody bumped into me and knocked me down, and somebody else offered me a bottle of Coca-Cola. I got those with LSD. I kind of lost a little bit of time there. And when I was done losing the time, I realized that I had no idea what I was doing or who I was or what I wanted to be. It was a midlife crisis, but I was 17. told my manager I, I just wanted to stop, and I did. I walked away for almost four years. You know, many performers will say that they need to walk away to live a little bit you know, to to maybe continue doing what they were doing. Hmm. I think that's a fair thing, because if you stop, if you stop being part of the world, well, Leonard Cohen would periodically do what he called going up on the mountain, where he would go to uh, his retreat and he would practice Buddhism and he would be on the mountain. He would be away from the day to day world. And I think there's a lot to be said for that for some people in some periods of time. But if you're going to write about the world, you have to be in the world. And the world goes on around you. You have to live it. And at 17, 18, even 20, 21, you have a lot of feelings, but you don't have a lot of experience. I I needed time. I needed to figure out or let my talent figure out where it sat, what what I was doing, what I wanted to do. So I scraped by. I moved to Los Angeles. Um... I sang commercials for really terrible motels, uh, stayed below the radar, wrote lead sheets for people, for their songs, um, made a living doing anything I could, and then started assembling what eventually became the Stars and the Between the Lines albums. And I started feeling like a writer, and I realized that that was what was going to be really the guidepost in my life, being a writer. And all of the rest of it was just sometimes necessary nonsense, like the business that I spend hours on every day. But a lot of the time, it was also it was also just frittering away my time on things when I could be sitting there with a guitar or a pen writing. I decided to be a writer, and that's pretty much been it ever since. Whenever whenever I got to the point where being on the road or being in business was too much uh, for the writing, I stepped back. I've done it, I guess, three times in my life. At seventeen. 17- how did that change your life? It was such a huge moment for you, and, and suddenly you were thrust into the spotlight. Well, it, it looks that way. Yeah. <laughs> I spent two years just on the road and in the studio, two and a half years. I had written Stars and Jesse, and by the time At 17 came out, I had been on tour on and off, gosh, for three years. So when 17 was a hit, um, I was so busy being on the road that I barely had time to enjoy it. I just, one day I was playing clubs, then I was playing concerts, and then I was playing stadiums. And it was it was an amazing growth. But you know what I, what I tell other performers when they're having a huge success for the first time is stop and enjoy it because it doesn't last. I learned that a few years later, I started doing things like 
My first trip to Japan, we built two weeks so that I could see the country. And I did that with Australia, and I did that with Holland and Belgium and England. Uh, I started building time in, even though everybody yelled at me that that was not what I was supposed to be doing, because everybody was earning a living from it. I started building in time for myself to to experience the the life in those countries as much as I could as a performer. One of the things that you uh, that you've done over the years is is the marriage song, which I think is fantastic. I love that. Can you tell me? Can oh, you married tell me, in Mar- Yeah, and can you tell me the briefly the story behind it? It's it's really great. Well, not without dropping the f bomb. <laughs> That's fine. Um, I I started. I was in the UK when they legalized gay marriage, and at the time, I had been living with my now white hat for, I think, 14 years, 13 13 years, and it really incensed me because I felt like the United States was a leader, and we should have been leading in that. We should have been in the forefront of equality rather than taking a back seat to what is realistically the country that we broke away from, much as I love the UK. And then Canada legalized it. And Ireland and all of these places where you would never have expected it. I mean, Spain, for God's sake. And I got more and more angry. And Pat finally said, you better turn this into something funny because (laughs) it's not going to be good for you. So I started writing. We're married in London, but not in New York. Because it did get confusing. I mean, when we got married in Toronto in 2003, then we came back to the United States. And we had to fill in those forms that say, are you married or single? And... I really didn't know what to put, because I don't like lying. But on the other hand, there was no place for me to put uh, marry, but with complications. So the song really came out of that. And I'm not going to give it away, because it's it's a free download, I think, on my website. Right. You can find it all over the online, free, or um, on YouTube and whatnot. But the beauty of the song is that in that last verse, people start thinking, oh, now she's going to get all... Rainbow Coalition, and isn't that wonderful? <laughs> and then I drop the F bomb, and it's like, it's all over. You know, when I first started performing it, I had walkouts. People would get up and leave. Mm. I thought, how interesting that this is so divisive to the second half of the show, so that by then people would know, oh, okay, it's Janicean, and uh, it's a funny song. I right. feel like I was right. threatening them. Yeah, it's great. I'm wondering, and I know there's no way to answer this, but how do you envision live shows whenever they start up again? I mean, it could be a long time, really. I know. We're all in the same boat, all of us performers, and not just performers. My friends who are crew members and venue people, uh, venue owners, club owners, you know, they're just getting killed out there it's it's uh and again going back to governments you know at certain countries um the uk um, parts of australia and other countries where canada has done a great job on trying to help out the arts and the arts community not just famous people because for instance someone like me who is semi-famous i have a royalty stream still um i had good years in there i get a pension from my union um, but there are a lot of people like roadies, the people who actually get the lights so that you can see the performer or um, sound people, engineers, um, production managers, caterers who provide food, not just for the ins, but for us stage uh, drivers. They're all out of work, everybody. And so there are countries that have recognized that the arts are worth preserving and that they're important because in a time like this, especially when there's political upheaval, the arts are one of the few things that 
can stay, can be enjoyed by everybody, can stay not divisive. I'm not going to say the arts stay non-political because certainly in my case they become political. But we can try to use them as a way to get through hard times like this. I don't know where live shows are going or what they will be. I know that you cannot duplicate a live show digitally. You you just can't do it. Not the feeling. It's like duplicating no. a face-to-face conversation with text. I text people back and forth all the time or I email, but there is nothing like the last however many tens of thousands of years that our bodies and brains have had to look at each other and pick up on signals that that you don't see in a text. It has that funny feeling you get when you meet certain people that you're going to be friends. And when you meet other people where you go, oh, no, I don't think so. So sitting in concert with a group of people, even if it's 40 <laughs> people at a living room concert or it's 40,000 in O2 Stadium, it's a different feeling and a different sort of enjoyment. It's a shared experience. And I think that if we take away that shared experience and confine it to media, uh, we're really, really losing something. I, I, I'd include movies and the theater-going experience in that, too, because you go to certain movies and you finish, and there you are with the audience, yes. and everybody's going, oh, my God, I can't believe I just saw that. You know, people are crying, <laughs> people are laughing. <laughs> I just talked to uh, Colin Quinn, who used to be on Saturday Night Live. Oh, sure. Um, and he said he did one of those, the movie, outdoor movie theater type uh, comedy shows. And he said mm-hmm. it was nice to get out and tell the jokes, but he said you can't hear anybody's laughter because they're in their cars. Yeah, it really messes up your timing, <laughs> yeah. especially, yeah. I think, for somebody like Quinn, who's been on Saturday Night Live so much and is is used to working with a live audience. My first trip to Japan was before they had many American TV shows, 77, I think, and clapping was not in the culture. Right. So nobody warned me. And I finished my first half and walked off and I had a huge number one record there. It was number one for a year on the charts. And I walked off and the promoter came in and said, God, that was great. And I said, they hated me. <laughs> they hated me. I finished 10 minutes early. I couldn't talk to them. I had no, they didn't clap. And he said, they don't clap. And I said, oh my God, somebody might've warned me. <laughs> it totally changes your timing. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is harder on live comedians or people used to working with a live audience. You know, I grew up with a foot in both worlds. So it's not as hard for me because I did so much television in front of live audiences. But for someone like um, a Quinn or any of the comedians out there who have no film experience, I think it's got to be miserable. Yeah, and speaking of SNL, were you not on the first, the debut episode of that? Me in and 75? Yeah. yeah, that I was remember. back when nobody thought well, this would happen. I mean, who would think that 40 plus years later it would still be on? Yeah, I mean, I think at the time they just figured they'd do one or two episodes. And uh, I remember George Carlin was the host and it seemed to go great. Did you have much, much interaction with the cast? Not much. Everybody was absolutely terrified because no one had done a live television show since the Sullivan show went off the air. A lot of the crew were from the Sullivan show. I think that's where Lauren Michaels so smart putting together the Second City people because they were used to improv. They were used to um, turning on a dime as as we say. You're a performer and you grow up with a lot of different types of audiences and in my case you do everything from opening for America and having coke bottles thrown at you to playing for royalty 
and watching people check the royals to see how they're going to react before they uh, clap. So you've right. got all that under your belt, and if a speaker blows up or if they cut the commercial too early, you just pick it up and go on. I think that's uh, it's one of the big benefits of being on the road. And again, back to talking about what's going to happen, part of the scary thing is just, are we going to have five or six years, oh God, please no, of performers yeah. who don't know what that is? I think it will write itself because I think in my industry, we've gotten so big and so specialized that the audience had come to expect and performers had come to expect hugeness, you know, uh, pyrotechnics and huge screens. And, and they had forgotten what it was like to just get up there and sing. I mean, I, you look at the two huge success stories of a few years ago. It was Adele and Taylor. And they were both women who stood there and sang. They had a band, or they have a band, but basically it's a, it's a person singing. Frank Turner in the UK, same thing. I mean, he sells out O2 for several nights, and he's a guy who sings. It's not um, it's not a sh- it's not a razzle dazzle. Not that there's anything wrong with razzle yeah. dazzle. I mean, I I pay to see her when she performs because I think the razzle dazzle she does is amazing. Celine Dion, same thing. But I also am aware after shows when I stay to meet the audience that a lot of the younger people coming up to me literally say, "I didn't know you could just stand on stage for two hours with a guitar and do that to me." <laughs> <laughs> Do that to me. Yeah, I love Isn't that. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Well, all I can tell people is to go to bettertimeswillcome.com. That website, it's incredible, and it's an incredible group of people involved. And just for some great optimism when we need it most, I have the feeling you and and me and many other people on November 3rd might be drinking a glass of wine or two. Well, I don't know. I don't want to jinx anything. I'm a performer. I'm superstitious, you know? I just, <laughs> I, I hope that by next April. My, my 70th birthday rolls around next April. And I hope that by then this is all behind us and we feel like we are a country again and we're trying to be a little nicer to everybody. Oh, God, I sound like Pollyanna. I really do hope that because <laughs> no, somebody said on my Facebook no, page a couple of weeks ago, you know, we are, the country is destroyed and, and we've turned into a blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, still collecting garbage. You can still eat. People are still talking to each other. We, we have not turned into that. It's not too late. Stop talking about leaving the country and going somewhere else, you know, you stay here and you, you vote and you make your voice heard and you try and make your corner of the world a little better and that's all you can do. And we all feel safe again. Well, cheers to you, Janice Ian. It was a true honor and keep doing what you're doing. Stay healthy and, and good luck in the future. Oh, Jim. Thank you. There've been a lot of good memories. Thank you for that. It was nice of you to spend this much time. I I appreciate it. Hey, say hi to Vegas. I had one of my warmest and most fun concerts there. We like to clap for people here. You know, if you're playing for the actual residents, it's a whole other world, and I really loved it. Janice, thank you so much. Thank you again, Jim. Really appreciate it. Thanks for doing your homework. Boy, that makes my life so much easier. You know, there are some people that when I'm done interviewing them, I think, boy, I could really be friends with that person. Don't you think that there should be a film about her extraordinary life and that story about her mom just heartbreakingly great? Make sure that you go to Janice Ian's Better Times Will Come website. There's always new and fun stuff to discover. 
as she continues to help other people. Well, that does it for this episode of The Fake Show. I'm Jim Tofty. Hope you enjoyed my visit with Janice Ian. I'll see you back here next time. Listen to The Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Lacking in the social graces